Hi there, and welcome to the Pearls from My Mom podcast. Every mom has special pearls of wisdom she passes on to her kids. In this podcast, we'll be talking about those pearls of wisdom, as well as the life lessons that our moms have passed down to us. We will be sharing to keep the legacy alive. Death. There are a select number of words in the English language that can elicit a visceral reaction, and death happens to be one of them. I find that people are usually in one of two camps regarding the talk of death. One, there are the people that shy away from the conversation. They don't want to talk about it or think about it, most likely out of fear it will happen to them or someone they love. And the second camp, those people are intensely curious about it, not in a morbid sort of way, just that there is some understanding that it is going to happen to everyone, and the conversation is an important one to have. I spent the majority of my life in the first camp, but after losing my mom, I've found myself wanting to talk about it and to hear other people's perspectives on it. My guest today is Cassandra Yonder. She's the founder of the Virtual School for Community Death Caring in Canada. She is helping the world to embrace this conversation and reclaim death caring. I'm very excited to chat with her today, so let's get right into it. Hi, Cassandra. How are you? I'm great, Jesse. How are you doing? Awesome. I'm really excited that we're doing this conversation today. So welcome to Pearls from My Mom. Thank you so much. The name of your project is just wonderful. I was really moved to hear from you. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's definitely my passion for sure. Yeah. So I found you through some Facebook groups. Um, After my mom passed away, I got super interested in learning more about death and what's out there. And so I found you through your, your Facebook groups, which are phenomenal, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the Death Caring Facebook group has um, more than four and a half thousand people in it now. And, you know, I started it without any intention at all in mind. It was just, it was about, I don't know, about six or seven years ago, I was starting to collect things I found in the social media just for my own self. And I wanted to put them somewhere just for storage. And I thought, oh, I'll just start this Facebook group. And someone found out about it and wanted to join, wanted to join. And now there's almost 5,000 people there. I love it. I think the articles and the the topics that you post are really insightful and it's definitely helped me in in my journey so far. So I'm definitely appreciative of that. And it made me want to interview you for the podcast. And so we're going to jump right in. I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but what can you tell us? What do you do? Yeah, well, the field of community death caring is huge and um, I came into this work, my background was in grief and bereavement um, and I was sort of thinking that I might get involved with becoming a bereavement coordinator or here on our remote rural property I thought I might open a sort of a camp or a retreat for grieving families Um, and during that period of sort of trying to sort through all of that our good friend and neighbor um, died suddenly and unexpectedly and um, our family went up to the house at the time uh, that he died and were involved with making his post-death care arrangements. And we said to his wife, Sue, um, what, what would Jeremy have wanted? And he hadn't left any instructions. And she said, well, he would have, want, he would have wanted to have been taken care, um, care of by community as opposed to professionals, if that was possible. And so I thought that I'd heard about um, some aspects of community death caring or home funeral. And so I Googled a little bit and I don't know, we just sort of worked our way through it and ended up having what I would now in retrospect call a home funeral for Jeremy and a home burial as well, a green burial. And um, 
it was such a transformative thing to be involved with, um, not only as sort of a grief counselor looking at it through a lens of grief and bereavement, which is usually the lens that I tend to bring to things, um, but also just as a meaningful act of community, of village making, it was such a powerful thing to be involved with that I ended up Googling, like it felt like being at a home birth. That was sort of the flavor of it. Mm -hmm. And so I Googled death midwifery. I thought, is there such a thing? And this was um, almost 10 years ago now, I guess. And so what I found was in the States, people calling themselves death midwives who were practicing this thing called home funerals. And so I went to be trained um, at Final Passages with Jerry Grace Lyons, which was a wonderful training and came back and thought, this is awesome. I'm going to be a home funeral guide and I'll hang my shingle. And that was um, interesting because it didn't go the way that I'd thought. First of all, it was a really bad um, idea for a business. For one, because I live in such a remote rural community that there just wasn't, I mean, nobody knew about it yet. It was sort of this new age crazy thing, which is funny because it's an ancient practice, but it was seen as this new age thing. And so there wasn't much of a market <laughs> for what I was offering in my um, very, very small population base. But I did get a lot of people calling me to talk about it and ask what it was. And then I started getting a lot of calls from the media. And so it sort of went in that direction for me. Um, and as I sort of kept developing my side business. I was offering, you know, some grief support and whatnot. And I continued to help families, but not in the way that I'd imagined because I had pictured that I would be sort of um, kind of like an alternative funeral director. But I've come to understand this movement in, in a different way and maybe a deeper way about um, reclaiming death care. And so I I more and more each day feel the importance of returning death care back to the family. And so it was less appealing for me as a business model to charge people for going and sort of helping them have a home funeral, when instead I'd rather just support people to do their own um, home funeral work at home. So um, that's kind of been my uh, business model, I guess. But the actual work that I've been um, drawn into doing has much more to do with um, the activism part of it. Um, so I've gotten heavily involved with public education. So I'll do I'll do talks and presentations. And my partner and I started a school called Beyond Yonder Virtual School for Community Death Caring in Canada. And, and so that's my main work in the field right now is to um, is to build a community where people who are wanting and who many already are serving um, on a volunteer basis in their own families and communities to reclaim death care and some want to also um, work publicly and offer services to the public for pay around this sort of work and I know a lot of amazing leaders in Canada who are doing different aspects of this work and um, so the school is really a place to bring that community together and so we have um, a 12-week program that runs twice a year and and that's really that's my job in all of this right now that's that's what I do as, as well as managing um, the social media that I'm involved with that's very cool it looks like such a, an amazing program it was initially like I said after my mom passed away I kind of started looking into everything death related because um, I I don't know some people don't want to talk about it and some people don't want to deal with it but I I don't know. I just ate it up. Like I enjoyed learning more. And, you know, I, I went on a trip to Mexico and the whole entire time, all I could do was ask about how they take care of their dead and, you know, what they believe. I just, I, I found it so interesting. So that's how I found you. And the right. school does look so amazing. And it, it looks like you're doing such great things out there. It's but did you, oh, did you say you, you started off in grief counseling, but that was, was that like something that you wanted to do when you were like a kid? <laughs> No, 
It wasn't. Um, my father is a veterinarian and I was born in an apartment that was attached to his veterinary clinic. And so as a child, when other children might have been playing with dolls, I was down in the kennels playing with the cats and dogs and other animals that ended up staying. And you can imagine that those that stayed at the clinic were not necessarily the healthy ones because they often went home. So the animals that were there were usually sick and often dying and often died. And so um, my time was spent offering, I guess, um, in a child's way, in a naive, beautiful way, really, uh, just offering comfort, whatever I perceived as comfort to these animals that were sick and dying. And I think that that, that really, um, really shaped me, actually. And also, um, when my mom was pregnant with me, you know how they say that babies are sort of washed in the chemicals of their mother's womb mm -hmm. uh, from the emotions. So you're sort of feeling, I guess, what your mother feels. Um, and my mother's mother died at about the same time that I was conceived. So the womb that I was formed in was a, a place of grieving. And I think my mom had a really healthy grief process. And yet that's what was going on. So I think those two factors played a huge part in just developing who I was, developing my character. And um, but no, I was on a completely different path, and it was it was actually part of this desire to return to the land, to want to be a homesteader. Um, my partner and I first started uh, a horse boarding farm. Well, we took over a horse boarding farm that that had been in the family, um, and on that farm, I saw something that really moved me and it, I guess it kind of harkened back to my own connection with animals but I saw that these young young women mostly um, but boys too but young young people who would come to the farm were exploring things that they didn't seem to be as um, capable to explore in other ways and other areas of their life um, and so this really reminded me of grief actually there was um, grieving people and they just seemed to open up around the animals there was something about um, observing the life cycle I think that's so obvious on a farm was getting people in touch with um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Something a lot more real. And I, I saw it actually as a healing modality. And that's what inspired me to go back and get my certificate in grief and bereavement and to become a bereavement support provider from there. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my path through it. I think that's great. My mom, one of the things that she always said was um, the best gift that you can be given is the ability to serve other people. And she was a she was a, a caregiver and you know, obviously you're a caregiver and I have a bit of that personality in myself too. So that's really nice that you can take that and and help people through, you know, like literally like the toughest time <laughs> they're going through, like one of the hardest things they'll ever have to go through. That's really, really nice. Yeah. When was it that your mom died, Jesse? So she died in uh, July of twenty fifteen. So it's it's coming up on three years now. Wow. And this um, project that you've undertaken, Pearls of Wisdom, is quite a, a tribute. Is this something that she would have that she would have been into? I think so. I think yeah. <laughs> I don't think she would have liked all the attention on herself, right? Which is funny because she was she was like when she was in college, she was a theater person, and so she there was a part of her that really liked the spotlight. Yeah, but she was so humble that I think that she would have, you know, there, there are parts of what I'm doing that I think would bother her a little bit just because she wouldn't want all the focus. You know, she liked to quietly serve people and not, she didn't need all that, that other stuff. But, um, you know, I like my whole entire goal every day that I wake up is just to make her proud of who I am and what I'm doing. Yeah. And the moment that I started to use it to try to help other people tell their stories. Um, is That's when, when you felt the connection. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Oh, that's so fascinating. 
That's really fascinating. And it speaks to me of a continuing bond between you and your mom, which I feel like, is that a concept you're familiar with, the continuing bonds theory? I'm not. No, but I would, I want to hear about it. <laughs> well, it used to be, it used to be, I, I don't know if you've been interested to read about different grief theories and whatnot. Um, grief theory is <laughs> kind of, kind of dry and strange, but it, it's really, it's attractive to me. I don't know. I have an analytical mind. I like to look at it that way and then, um, and then kind of feel into it a little bit more intuitively, of course, but grief theorists um, used to focus on how to frame a grieving process, a healthy grief process, in such a way that people basically got over their grief. Um, so how to sort of disengage from the relationship with the person who died and to reinvest in new parts of life and to, you know, we've all heard this, these ideas of letting go or moving on or all those kind of um, phrases that are really common in our culture around grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only not so like, well, pretty recently that the whole kind of aspect of it has changed and grief theorists have realized that actually people maintain relationships with those who've died in a lot of different ways. For some people, it's like a spiritual, metaphysical continuing of a, of a relationship. For other people, it's just, and for me, the way I would describe it is that um, our relationship with other people is partly a relationship that we're having in our own selves. Like we have that person's inner representation within ourselves. And so when the person dies, when their physical body dies and we can't carry on that external relationship, we still carry them with us. And that's why I like to say this whole idea of living on in memory. Um, I actually see not so much as a, as an abstract metaphor, but really as, as a, as a truth um, that I think we really do live on in people's um, memories as we carry one another with us. And so the interesting thing about that to me is that it's not a stagnant thing. It's not just a memory that's that's kind of crystallized in time. It's actually a relationship. And so the relationship changes over time. And the way you describe this project of Pearls of Wisdom um, and that you're able to to get more out of this continuing bond that you maintain with your mother by the the work that you put into it and the way that you frame it and the way that you give back speaks totally to me of the dynamic nature of the continuing bond and that your relationship with your mom is actually continuing to evolve even after her death. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing to me. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for that, for explaining that. I, I totally agree. I actually was really lucky in the first interview that I actually did for the podcast was with a lady named Mary and her piece of advice to me was that, you know, just because your mom is gone doesn't mean that you can't still have a relationship with her. Mm. Like those words had never occurred to me before. Mm -hmm. And so to have that piece of advice, I think was, was really amazing. I I actually am really interested in studying thanatology. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'll get there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's a really terrific um, website called What's Your Grief? Mm-hmm. And it's put out there by some uh, grief theorists who are totally into grief theory, but are really into also making it palatable. So it's a lovely website. You can go and sort of delve as deeply as you're inclined. You can get to some kind of meaty stuff and links to more academic papers if that's your um, particular line of inquiry, but also just some really relatable stuff. So it's a nice one to um, have in your stat- come up in your status in Facebook too, but it's called What's Your Grief? I think they're doing, doing some really good work in that area. That's awesome. I will definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. So for people out there that might be a little bit curious, how does a home funeral work? And I know that there's like probably many different ways. So I guess in the most like succinct way. <laughs> yeah. Tough, yeah. Tough ask, but how, how does it all work for, for people? 
for sure. So I think I mentioned earlier that um, for me, community death caring is like an overarching umbrella of the whole field of how we reclaim the care of our dying um, dead and bereaved people in our culture. And there's so many different ways of practicing that and a lot of different practitioners that are doing work in different ways from um, advanced planning to celebrant work to end of life doulas helping people um, and families uh, during the time of transition or an end stage right up to the time that they die. Um, yeah, and then bereavement support. There's there's so many different aspects of it. Um, but the post-death care piece is really interesting. It's interesting in a couple of ways. One, because I think that um, healthcare and specifically hospice palliative care aims to serve people and their families from the time of diagnosis and into bereavement. So it sort of looks at that whole period of time um, surrounding death. And yet this one piece of sort of caring for the dead has been passed off to private industry, to the funeral industry. And so um, that funeral industry has arisen to meet a need and it arose during the Industrial Revolution. It changed as we were sort of um, specializing in our jobs and sort of handing certain things off to, to different professions. And so undertakers became the people who would undertake to care for the dead for us. Before that, it was just something that was done at home, and it still is in many, many parts of the world um, now. But um, so a home funeral... I hate to say that it's any one particular thing because to me, a home funeral is just changing the locus of control. I think in North America, most people assume that you need a to hire a funeral director or to hire professionals, that it's necessary when someone dies that that step be taken. Um, but actually it's, it's the next of kin's legal obligation to care for their own dead and they, um, we carry that obligation for our own next of kin, but we pass that off by hiring funeral directors to do that work for us. Um, but we do have a moral and uh, um, we do have the right still to do that work ourselves if we want to. And so a home funeral has kind of tended to look like if you Google home funeral, you'll see a lot of the same sort of picture. But I think that there's a deeper meaning to it, which is really just about reclaiming. It's about reclaiming that um, the locus of control within the family. So the funeral industry in taking over this work, um, it kind of developed during a time where the common belief system is that people who are grieving are vulnerable. And in order to sort of help them with their grief, that we need to conspire to protect them from from these kind of emotions that can be really uncomfortable to, to feel. Mm -hmm. And so the funeral industry was sort of predicated upon this belief that, um, that we help people by, by kind of taking over. And so the typical funeral model then in the sort of industrialized landscape has become this, what we call, I'm quote, using quotation marks, the traditional funeral has become something really familiar. And the home funeral, I think, is simply just a reaction to that. Um, I often describe the movement by comparing it to the slow food movement and saying that I think most people can identify with an alienation from the production of our own food today when we picture ourselves going to the grocery store, for example, and seeing the food, like seeing the meat in the meat aisle is just sort of these cuts up pieces of flesh that are wrapped in cellophane. And people, I think, when they're standing there looking at that, get a really uncomfortable feeling in their gut, like they 
they feel so removed from what that is. They think that probably some inhumane practices they don't believe in um, came to pass in order for that meat to be presented to them. They might not even know that, you know, they might be hyper aware that they don't even know what animal it came from or what its life cycle was like. And so I think they noticed that, you know, this wasn't this way for my grandparents and they come become in touch with a sense of alienation um, from food productivity and so therefore seek to reclaim the production of their own food. And I think in the very same way that we get a really similar feeling um, around funerals now, around lots of aspects of death caring, and this sort of sense of alienation, the the ability to really feel into how we've we've lost touch with it and we've we've handed it we handed it over to the funeral industry and to um, the medical system and that sense of alienation I think causes us to want to reclaim and so if the slow food movement is about reclaiming the productivity of our own food then in the same way the community death care movement is about reclaiming connection with caring for our own dying dead and bereaved and so within that then the home funeral is about reclaiming post-death care so it doesn't necessarily mean and I'll give this sort of the typical example of what it might look for look like for some families um, but I want to start by just framing it to say that it, like I hope ideally it would look different for every family because every family is different um, and so what reclaiming post-death care might look like um, for one family is going to be different for another but typically um, well, yeah, I don't even want to say typically, but what happens is that the family is sort of um, in control. And so they're making a set of decisions about how they want their loved one's body to be cared for after they've died. And that might involve hiring a funeral director. It involves really reaching out for help where you need help. It involves knowing that you could do it yourself, but deciding when and what and how you want it to be done and what and when and what help you want to have in order to accomplish it. Um, people often have home funerals where there's kind of a, a wake or a vigil following the death where their loved one's body is um, prepared in some way for a viewing or just to spend time with people. Home funerals often go on for several days, whereas a typical funeral um, at a funeral home is you know, there's there's that visitation period where the body is sort of dressed and cared for and presented, and then the family's invited to come and spend, you know, an hour or two um, in the company. Sometimes there's an open casket, sometimes not. I mean, that's a really common experience that most of us have been through. But in a home funeral, it's really drawn out. I mean, it can be. In some cases, it's really fast. Um, but there's the opportunity for it to take as long as it needs to take, I guess. And so um, people often use techni ice or dry ice to keep the body cool so that decomposition doesn't happen quickly and it can um, reduce smells if the smells of decomposition are offensive for people. Um, and often people are washed and dressed and, and shrouded or laid out in a way that is beautiful. And I use the word beauty in a really intentional way, not in the beauty myth way. Um, but actually in the way of making beauty by, by co-creating something, by, by loving and by caring and by um, being together in that way. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing in the funeral industry. There's so much talk about sort of like that memory picture or um, it's kind of, it's, it's funny how, like how is an embalmer supposed to prepare a body for viewing, I guess? I mean, what choice do they have? But there's sort of this idea that if the person's going to look 
that the person should look good as opposed to looking dead, that they should look sort of like they're going out for an evening or do you know what I mean? They're dressed kind of in formal attire and they have makeup on. And I understand why embalmers um, are drawn to, to go in that direction because what choice do they have in, in our culture today? Um, but at the same time, I think in home funerals, there's much more awareness of, well, there's a lot more closeness with death. So um, I think that how the person looks might be less about this kind of beauty myth of beauty and more about um, togetherness. So they might have their favorite things around them. They might be wearing their favorite clothes. There might be um, scents in the room that were important to that person. There might be music playing. It's just really an, uh, an opportunity for the family to um, cooperate and to make meaning of the death, I, I think is kind of the value in, uh, in what goes on during a home funeral. I think and that then, sounds, oh sorry I just I think that's so beautiful like everything that you're describing is I think fascinating and beautiful and sounds just amazing. <laughs> yeah, it it really is it really is amazing. Yeah, when we when we emailed you said well I know that your project is called Pearls of Wisdom and you asked for a pearl of wisdom about grief and the one that came to mind for me is that um in my understanding of grief theory and as well in the practical way that I've witnessed people um, going through this sort of thing is that grief needs opportunity. I think that um, that perhaps a healthy a way of, of looking at a healthy grief process um, has very much to do with um, the meaning that people make of it. And so what it needs is opportunity. So I would never go so far as to say, well, someone should have a home funeral because it's healthier to see the body. Like that's way, way oversimplifying it. But what I would go so far as to say is that whatever a family does to um, to work together to make meaning of what's happened, to cooperate, to be village making, as Stephen Jenkinson um, would say that that death should be a village making experience, and all of those things present an opportunity for grief, and um, that's what grief needs. That's my pearl of wisdom. Grief needs opportunity, and so it's not supposed to look any particular way, but stuff's going on. You know, change is happening. And um, the things that happened as we go through those kind of transition periods, because, you know, grieving people were our assumptive world often has been been completely shattered if we've lost someone who we had a primary attachment with. And we're really going through a transformational process in and of ourselves. And so it helps to be engaged. It helps to be viscerally engaged in that transformation. I think um, that's what I would say anyway, is that grief needs opportunity and home funerals provide a lot of opportunity for a lot of meaning making. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that pearl of wisdom. And I, I think what you're saying sounds so interesting to me because I really honestly feel like my mom would have wanted that. Like she didn't want a funeral. And I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before that probably my biggest regret in the whole entire death process aside from me not physically being able to be there the whole time I was there during the actual you know like last two weeks um mm -hmm. but my biggest regret is that my mom didn't want anybody making a fuss over her um like she knew you know she was diagnosed as terminally ill and she got this card she basically hired this company like as soon as she's like if I die you know call the number on this card and they'll do everything right <laughs> and she's like they'll burn me up she's like I don't want awake. I don't want a funeral. I don't. And, and she did that because she didn't want people making a fuss over her. Right. But I also don't think that she knew that what you're doing 
exists because if she did, I think that, you know, I know she wanted to die at home. Unfortunately, she didn't, she didn't get the chance to, um, she died in the hospital. Um, and I know that she would have wanted us to all, you know, take part in it. And I think if she had known that this was out there, she would have, like, my mom was a hippie. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like she went to Woodstock. She was like an original hippie. Um, Well, I mean, I think what you're, what I hear you expressing is, is something that is so common and I'm, I'm glad that you're able to take it as an intended message of love from your mom, which is, I don't want to be a burden. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel like so much of our death caring practices this day and age are around this concept of not wanting to be a burden. And that really causes me to question our relationships in our culture. Mm. I mean, when we have newborn babies and we care for them in every conceivable way, it would never occur to us that they should think of themselves as a burden. And so I really feel that it's, it's, it's actually this alienation from death caring that we've completely enculturated that's causing our elderly now to think of themselves as a burden. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wonder what it means when we fail to burden one another with ourselves at end of life and in death. And so while on one hand, I can really relate to why your mom would have said that, um, well, not the direct words, I don't want to be a burden, but just that whole sentiment that you shared. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want to think of you guys being sad, right? It's this conspiracy to protect. We think, oh, if I have a celebration of life instead of a funeral, then my loved ones will laugh and party instead of crying and raging. Um, but I mean, it's all going to be there anyway. <laughs> it's sort of like the conspiracy to protect is kind of this theory that if we sweep it under the rug, then it won't happen. But we all know that grief happens anyway and denying it hasn't really worked for us has it right like that's what what you're doing and what I'm doing is all about um our death denying culture hasn't hasn't really really worked for us that hasn't had the desired result and we just find ourselves increasingly alienated from death and increasingly confused about how to connect and reclaim and so I wonder then um in your mom's case that uh yeah what, what that well, I mean, I'd love to hear from you. Like, what what do you imagine that? How do you imagine that it might have been different, or um, what well, would you? Yeah, what do you imagine it could have been? Well, so we lived in the mountains of Colorado. I'm from Colorado, and we lived in this beautiful property of you know just acres and acres of land. And um, I really do imagine. I know that I know she wanted to die in her bed because she had that beautiful view of the the vistas. I mean, you couldn't see other houses. Like we just. It was perfect. And I know she wanted to die there um, because that's where she felt most connected. And I think, you know, to me, it it made me mad that she wouldn't let me take care of her. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I live in Canada now. So physically, I was separated for, you know, a a pretty large part of the time that she was sick. But Mm -hmm. towards the end, like, you know, she, she was my mom. So she, she wiped my butt. She fed me. She, you know, she did all that stuff and she wouldn't let me, you know, even consider letting me do any of that stuff for her, which I would have lovingly done without question. You know, with- so, so fill me in on the decision-making that went on there. So you, were you living in Canada at the time or? Yeah, I was living in Canada. My sister was back in Colorado with my mom. Okay. And um, she said that she wanted to be home, but she didn't want you to care for her at home. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, they gave her around six months to two years is what they said that she might have, which is a pretty 
you know, big range. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she, she wanted to plan it. My mom was like a, a realist in the fact that she would like plan stuff really well, <laughs> you know, she would just get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, you know, set forth all the plans and she just, like I said, she just purchased that program. I don't even remember what it's called, but like where, you know, you just call the number and they come wherever she is, they just whisk her away. And, um, but like, I, I just don't think that that's fair to us as a family. Like I was, I was pretty mad at my mom for that. And then for not wanting a funeral or a wake. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people, you know, when I put it out there on Facebook that my mom had passed away, a lot of her old friends, you know, contacted me and said, Oh, tell me about the service. Right. And I had to tell them, I'm sorry, we're not doing anything. And that really, you know, I don't want to be mad at my mom after she's gone, but like, mm. and it, the funeral's not really for them. It's kind of for the rest that are left behind. At least what that's kind of what I've thought about it. Um, well, first of all, I'm so proud of you that you're able to be in touch with your anger towards your mom at this point, honestly, because that's just another another signifier to me that that the continuing bond, that the relationship that, that you continue to have with her is robust, right? Yeah. Um, if you had to sort of simplify her down to this one dimensional snapshot, I'm sure that it would be a positive one. <laughs> but you know, you're you're relating to her in all in all of the ways. And there's a lot of diversity and complexity there. And um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that that you'd be angry that that opportunity was um, not available to you. For sure. And, you know, not just to spite her, but we did throw a party and invited all of her friends to come talk. And um, yeah. my only regret there is that we didn't have a, a cardboard cutout of her that people could take selfies with, which I know sounds really funny. Right. Um, my sister, after the party, you know, we were kind of cleaning up and I, th- I said, I think that went really well. And she said, yeah, me too. I said, I'm glad we did it. And she said, me too. I said, I kind of wish we had a cardboard cutout. And my sister said, I was thinking the same thing, but we both <laughs> thought it would be weird. So we didn't bring it up, but I don't know. I think we would have gotten a kick out of it. As long as it was a nice picture, you know, she would have liked it, but. <laughs> uh, you have such a creative family. Yeah. But I think she would have loved the idea of, you know, being, um, you know, wrapped and being, I, I know that she didn't want a bunch of people coming and looking at her, like you said, with makeup on. And, and again, that's not it. It just is what it is. But, you know, by the time she passed away, she didn't have hair anymore and like. Uh, so I don't think she would want it to be like a spectacle, but I don't think she would have had a problem with her family kind of, you know, wrapping her in something nice and, and kind of doing something in the mountains with her. Right. Well, you've gone so far in in terms of examining and being self-aware of your own wound and this kind of healing process around this that, um, you know, if you, if you step back um, a generation or two, then perhaps um, this is being accomplished, maybe not directly in what you might, what you weren't able to offer for your mom, but in your reaction to that, just in your response to your imagination of what it could have been. So now you're going further in terms of sharing with the world now, like what you just said out loud, you know, in your podcast, what you just said is going to trigger other people and it's going to remind people to ask these questions and to, to think about what, what, home funerals could be not using your mom as a bad example but using your imagination as a good example and so I don't know I think there's a lot of a lot of potential in that a lot of potential in um, being open about what you what you wished for and what you what you imagine it's um it's a really a really beautiful imagination and um yeah yeah I think that has its own its own influence 
Yeah, I think so too. I don't know if she would have asked me at the time, you know, what I would have wanted. I don't know if I would have had an idea of it, but I probably would have at least said we could have a party, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you don't know. That's the thing. I mean, it goes on and, you know, we all sort of just have to be with, with what is and what was. Um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like, um, yeah, it sounds like your mom was pretty on the ball in terms of, of directing her own situation. And so she went through her own problem solving, um, trying to make the most loving and best decisions for the people around her with what she knew at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, she did the best she could. So, you know, this is, it's not everybody likes to talk about death like I do, (laughs) because I just find it, you know, interesting. And I think that it's not a, a subject that should be shied away from, but I would imagine there have to be highs and lows of your, you know, particular line of work. Not so much the educating, because I know there's highs and lows there too, mm-hmm. but like actually being with families, is there, you know, can you talk to some of the highs and the lows about, about that? Um, well, my work really, as I said, is more in the education piece. Like the work that I do with families is as hands-off as I I can possibly make it. I'm often connecting people with the resources they need, and that might even be other practitioners. Um, so the families that I serve really is uh, my own family and my own community. Um, I'm not sort of the uh, you know community death care practitioner with my bag going to people's homes as people assume often assume I am. Um, but the highs and lows of the whole practice. I think would really have to do with, um, well, just being this whole idea of reclaiming. I mean, people just realizing what it feels like to be reconnected with dying and death care. I think that just what we were just talking about a second ago, this whole idea of not wanting to be a burden and feeling that if we're not productive in our society that we don't have any value, I feel like things are going sort of so easily in that direction and our culture of um, autonomy, like holding autonomy above, above all else. I think when we're able to overcome that, I think when we're, when we're able to really reclaim, um, I think things happen that produce the highs. Things happen that make people think, aha, right, this is what it feels like to be in community and how can we have more of this? Um, the kind of satisfaction of having an, tomato grown from your own garden as opposed to one from a grocery store and that's the high it's like it's so hard to describe but it's that feeling of when you eat your own produce you feel in your gut a connection to the productivity of your own food and a connection to nature and understanding of the cycles of of death and birth that you're a part of in um in reality in the in the wide world and I think those are the highs of reclaiming death care as well. Um, when we realize that this idea of, like you were saying, um, you know, wiping our parents' bums or feeding them or um, doing these sort of very basic caring things and realizing the whole sort of culture and social structure that falls into place around that. Um, when that happens, people just have this feeling and they they lean into it and we're really hesitant to lean into it before it happens it's more about like oh no I could never do that like nobody hears about home funerals and says oh yeah that sounds like fun I want to do that but people are kind of in like the more maybe um people that are already leaning into death a little bit like yourself 
sort of can imagine the positives of it. Oh yeah, like I could, I like I'm willing to try that. Um, but but a more typical response is, oh my goodness, no, like I've never. I've never touched a dead body. Like that would be scary. Isn't that dangerous? Isn't that illegal? Um, but then as Jerry Grace Lyons says, when she's with families um, walking through the door of fear, um, what she's referring to is people engaging in home funeral and post-death care that that just thought they couldn't and then they do and it just feels so right um those those are the highs um seeing people reclaim um i would say probably the high of my career as a home funeral guide would be um actually not with jeremy i, I always talk about jeremy's death um because we were really um, authentically gathering and spontaneously caring for him in ways that I hadn't read about, I hadn't directed to do, it just it just felt right. So that was a high. But I'd actually say the high of my career as a home funeral guide would be with a family. Last summer, um, a woman called me and her father had died and she wanted to hire me to be a home funeral guide. And she had a picture in her mind of what that was, probably not dissimilar to the picture in your mind when you called me to do this interview and sort of expected that I'd show up at her house and that, you know, I would you know this is what we do we lay her her dad's body out together and um but that's not my style my style was to say well this is this is what it might look like this is what might happen and you know what support systems do you have in place what tools do you have and it turned out that she um her background was in nursing and when she heard what needed to be done she really felt like oh yeah like I could do that I could do that so what the care that I provided looked like was that I was sort of a hotline and over about a three to five day period I just made myself available to her over the phone and she called and got the information she needed and the stuff that she didn't need. She just sorted through on her own and sort of reported some, some stuff back to me or not. But the, the most flattering aspect, and this is the high, the most flattering aspect of the whole thing was that I wasn't invited to the funeral. I don't think it occurred to her to invite me to the funeral. And that to me, that told me that I had really done the job that I set out to do which is that it wasn't about me. It wasn't about the service that I was providing. Um, it was about um, her reclaiming death care for herself. And so that, that's a high. It's, it's um, yeah, it's, about, it's all about the reclaiming for me. It's all about the reclaiming. I think that sounds great. I think, you know, cause like my, you know, my mom had the doctors and her doctors were great and the nurses were great, but they're very like, kind of like I had never seen somebody die before I had never sat with somebody as they were dying and so I didn't know what that looked like I mean I, that was probably the most terrifying to, thing to me is like how does this all work you know I mean like mm -hmm. the movies you see it in the movies you see what happens there but I've never seen you know literally like one of the most important people in my life and so I think it would be nice to have somebody that kind of you know walk you through a little bit about like okay well this is you know I, I know that it could happen a bunch of different ways but this is kind of in generally what goes on and this is what you have to do afterwards. I think that sounds really nice. Yeah. So going into that a bit deeper, did you feel that your mom was in the hospital mm -hmm. and you were um, reasonably uh, scared by the unknown of what you were going to see her go through? Mm -hmm. Did you feel that there was information that you needed about that that you didn't get or... Yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, I understand that the doctors and the nurses have seen, you know, multitudes of people die. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. part of their job. Um, but like I said, I had never seen it before. So I remember asking, you know, because we had to make the decision, you know, my, my mom didn't want to be resuscitated or anything if she if she went into like a an arrest or anything. And 
um, we had to make the decision to, to, you know, kind of take her off the, the life support there. And so we did that and they asked if we had any questions and everybody was just kind of standing around. And I said, yeah, like, I, I like, I've never seen somebody die. Like, I don't know what it looks like, you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and just like, and the nurse was like, well, it could either be, you know, she could violently, <laughs> you know, like go around like a fish or she could just slip away quietly. And that was pretty much the answer that I got. And I, like I said, her nurses were great. I don't want to insult them, but like mm-hmm. it was very clinical to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would imagine that's part of their thing is to, you know, not get super emotionally involved in it. Um, right. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had much information about any of it. And then it was, funny because I remember I had spent the night at the hospital for weeks you know alternating with my aunt on and off and that night after she passed away my sister and I were walking out and I was thinking in my mind okay well I'll go home I'll get a shower I'll get a few hours sleep and I'll come back and then my sister was like you know you don't have to come back like we're we're done here Hmm. I was like oh okay like it was just it was very surreal and I didn't then I was like didn't know what to do with myself like I spent the last two weeks, you know, like yeah. spending the night and caring for her. And then all of a sudden it was just like, oh, I guess, I guess somebody just whisks her away and that's it. Right. Well, gosh, I mean, you've touched on so much there. My mind's um, going down many tangents, but I think that what's, what comes forward now, just that we're talking about um, home funerals is exactly that feeling that you said, like you're, you're kind of left. You're sort of this huge, important event or transition is happening and suddenly you're left with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is exactly parallel. Like to me, that's the alienation. Um, it, it's exactly parallel to that feeling I described of alienation in the grocery store when you're standing there looking at this meat and going like, wait a second, like how did this get here? Like what is this really? Um, I think like to me, that's a similar moment that you're describing when suddenly as you say, the, one of the most important things in your life is happening and you have no contact with it, no physical connection with it, no idea of what's going on. Someone just said, oh, don't worry, I'll handle this. As if that's somehow rescuing you. I mean, as if that's somehow caring for you by just taking it away, taking the problem away. Um, and I think that what's left when nothing is left um, to do, then that's where... <laughs> that's where I, that's where the problems start I think so I, I like I really resonate with what you're saying just this sense of what and I, I hear that from um, women who've had a miscarriage or um, a baby that's just been born has died and they went to the hospital imagining they'd be returning home with their child and are returning home empty-handed and that feeling of leaving the hospital of just like what <laughs> like what did, what just happened there what did I leave there I mean you had a similar experience with your mom right like what just happened in that building and how come I'm walking away empty-handed and empty-hearted and with nothing that I'm supposed to do right now mm-hmm. yeah yeah but the other thing I was going to say is when you speak about um, sort of how you might have been supported during that end of lifetime um, that's where I think this sort of part, again, under the umbrella of community death caring, there's people who are focusing, um, usually calling themselves soul or spiritual midwives or death doulas or end of life doulas or end of life guides. Um, this is where they're really finding capacity is how to support people through that. So they might 
might be working with um, a family such as yours to um, just really initiate a connection, really. To, I mean, maybe to explore with your mom um, about what her process is like, what her legacy is going to be, imagining with her any sort of unresolved stuff from the past, looking at your relationships as a family and speaking with you about um, what you might expect, what you might hope for. So yeah, a lot of amazing work going on. And at the same time, I wonder, in the same way that I say that sort of my my career high of being a home funeral guide was not being invited to the funeral, by the same token, I wonder also about um, about what you were really looking for or what support you, you needed in that moment when you're feeling this fear of like, I'm about to witness my mom's dying. Um, yeah, what what is that going to be like? I don't know if there's actually an answer for that. I, I There's part of me that wants to say that, that that questioning and that fear that you were holding actually is the authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure that, that the answer that you that you think you were looking for was going to come from somewhere outside of yourself. Maybe that was just your own preparation of for the moment that, that this, that this unimaginable thing is about to happen. This unimaginable and scary thing is about to happen. And I don't know that we need to, by the same token, sweep in and make it, make it more watered down or less scary or less, less digestible somehow. I think it, it kind of is this, this great unknown. Um, I think we have such a, such a enculturated hesitancy now to be with death. And we want to, I think, to some degree, tame it by, by having these solutions. Um, and that's where this movement, I think, that would be kind of, I guess, a low for me, is where this movement um, fails to fulfill its own purpose by then becoming the new level of the sweeping in (laughs) the new level of the conspiracy to protect Mm -hmm. Um, when we, I think it needs to be in service of reclaiming as opposed to being in service of (laughs) creating its own service, providing practitioners. Um, But I do think that there's, there is work to be done there. There There's this job that needs to be done, this wisdom that needs to be returned to the people. Um, I can think of two examples of maybe what I'm not articulating so clearly. One is um, my good friend and colleague, Rochelle Martin, um, works in the ER. She's a psychiatric nurse, and her job in emergency room is often to um, tell families that their loved one has died, and it's it's in emergency. So these are often unexpected deaths, and you can imagine, if you've ever been in an emergency department, that you know when stuff's really going bad and the family's kind of like ushered into this sort of small room to kind of await news, right? Everyone, I think, either has seen that in the movies or been in that awful experience themselves and can relate to just the, the quality of that, that time and that space. Mm-hmm. So Rochelle's often going into those little rooms and telling those families that their loved ones died. And then she says, um, do you want to come and see them? Do you want to come and see their body? And I think this enculturated hesitancy as a result of our alienation and denial of death causes everyone in the room to say, oh, no, no. But it seems like deep down people want to say yes but think that they're not supposed to for some reason, think that they should say, no, 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 it's okay. And so Rochelle, I think in doing the work of community death caring, um, 
nudges a little bit more than she might be easily inclined to do. And she says, well, you know, you could just come and, and say goodbye. And she said, it's always the same. Eventually someone, she offers a couple times and she offers maybe somewhat strongly and encourages and empowers. And then someone says, yes, I'll go. And as soon as that happened, she said, without fail, everyone else in the room goes, okay, I'll go with you. <laughs> so suddenly the whole room is going in to see their, their loved one's body. And then again, at the bedside, there is this sort of enculturated kind of hesitancy kind of comes up again and now we're here we like what are we supposed to do like do I talk to them do I touch them like what goes on now and so Rochelle will um, sometimes just hand them a warm washcloth like just that simple gesture of handing them a warm washcloth invites what I think is our um, to me a very natural response which is to sort of like gently wash off the person's face, wash off their hands, talk to them. And she said, it's the same thing. Like no one knows quite what to do, but when the first person makes that move, then suddenly everybody, people are climbing in the bed, people are crying, people are brushing their hair, fixing their clothes or like washing. Maybe there's a little bit of blood on them or whatever. She said just this kind of natural instinct to provide physical care sort of kicks in and I just think that's um, that's really special. I think that's what's needed is something. So I think this whole movement, this whole community death care movement is about that little nudge, this little nut thing to um, reconnect us, to incline us back toward um, taking up this this um, this work of village making as we as we care for our dead. Um, yeah, and another example of the same thing is um, Olivia Barham. Is uh, she calls herself uh, a death midwife and a home funeral guide in the United States, and um, she's done a lot of amazing work. But there's a video where she's um, helping a family wash their loved one's body who's died. And when you watch the video, if we just watch the video together now, what and I said, what did you see? You would probably say, well, we saw that they had. Um, you know, this woman's body laid out and that they had bowls of warm water and washcloths and that they're preparing to wash her body. And then they did. Um, and that Olivia and these women washed the body. And then if I said, now let's look again and watch closely and rewind the tape and watch it again. And we looked carefully, we would see that Olivia actually didn't wash the person's body. She made a gesture where she picked up, she said, here we are, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this, we're ready. She was like, um, holding the space, holding the container for this um, amazing transition that, that everybody was um, going through in the moment. And she put the, the cloth into the warm water and, and she just made a gesture to put it toward um, the body of the person who died. And everybody else sort of followed suit and took over and did it. But it's so interesting me, to me to look back and say she, she didn't do it. Like, like to me, that's, that's exactly the gesture that's needed is this sort of holding space and modeling that death is normal and natural, that our inclination to provide hands-on care is normal and natural, um, potentially therapeutic. Um, yeah, I just, I love those examples. And so I wonder then, this has been long-winded, but looking back, Jesse, to that time when um, your mom was in the hospital about to die and you were feeling that you needed some support um, to help understand what was going to happen, I wonder what that I wonder what the perfect gesture would have been in that moment to to fully open you to the experience, not so that you wouldn't be scared, um, but what what did, yeah I wonder what you needed 
Yeah, I know that's tough to say. I mean, I did enjoy the the taking care of her, and you know, like there were parts where like we'd have to like massage her feet, or you know, I I enjoyed that. So maybe just a warm washcloth would have helped. I mean, I was lucky enough I got to be holding her hand, you know, as she passed away, and then you know we kind of stood around and and then we went in a different room, and then I remember every we were getting ready to leave. And I said, I asked the nurse, I said, oh, you know, can I, can I go back and just look at her one more time? You know, and my family thought it was kind of weird, but (laughs) I don't know why I did it. And I just did. And I just went and I just touched her and I told her I loved her. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew she had been gone, but like, I don't know, it was important for me. So I don't know what the gesture would have been, but, but really anything, I guess, probably would have helped. Mm. Well, it sounds like you did so much with that with that moment. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I couldn't have, you know, planned it any, you know, like better, I guess. I knew yeah. it was going to happen. So if, you know, if it had been at home, I think it would have been better, but you know, that's a whole different, we just talked about that. It's a whole different thing. Right. Yeah. And so what was the, what were those last hours or moments like for you and your family? They were, you know, it was actually really nice. Um, so my mom, it was cancer and um, she was on a respirator and she, like I said, she didn't want to be resuscitated or anything. So um, there was a, a time they had a pretty intense like oxygen mask on her where it was kind of forcing air into her. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, we just didn't think that she would want that, you know because she had she had gone into an arrest before and she pointed to her dnr bracelet and said like you know like i mm. she didn't want to be intubated she didn't want any of that so um they told us that you know if we took the mask off that it would probably wouldn't be too long until her lungs would stop and so um so we were like okay but nobody really wanted to give the order to take the mask off um because mm. you know you mm-hmm. don't, you don't want to do that so i remember i asked if I like, we were kind of all in and out that day, just kind of popping in to see how she's doing. And I went in, sorry, I can't promise I'm not going to cry, but anyway, I cry every episode. So it doesn't matter. But (laughs) I went in and, um, it was just me and my mom. And I, and I said, um, she was not super responsive by this point, but I said, mom, like, I know that you're hanging in there, but if you want to go, you can, because we're going to be fine and we're going to miss you. But like, you don't have to hang in there for us. So if you're ready, we're ready. Mm-hmm. And the most coherent thing that she had done almost in like two days was she reached up and she tried to physically take off her mask. Mm-hmm. And it freaked me out because I was the only person in the room with her. And like, mm-hmm. I didn't want anybody to think that like I was, you know, trying to take things off of her. Right. So I called in the nurse and I said, I don't think she wants this on anymore. And mm-hmm. my mom was making the motion to try to take it off. And so... So she did take it off. And then we had no idea how long it would take um, for, you know, her to pass after that. But we kind of were all sitting in there and it was weird at first. And then my sister and I started telling stories about her, about, you know, just funny things that she would say or funny things that she did or camping trips we took. And Mm. her sister would chime in and then her brother would chime in. And we were all sitting around telling stories and the mood was really nice. And then we all just got quiet for a little bit. And we kind of, I think... I might have dozed off for a few seconds. I was sitting next to her holding her hand. You know, we all just kind of closed our eyes and we're relaxing. And I don't know what happened, but something just caused me to open up my eyes. And I looked and her chest wasn't moving up and down anymore. And we knew that she was gone. So it, it was really a nice moment for me, to be honest with you, to be able to share it with my sister like that mm-hmm. and to be able to share it with her like that. Um, so I don't feel bad about any of that. 
I'm happy that I was there. Mm. I feel like these stories are so precious. Just so precious. I mean, I think that another another movement that's been reclaimed, just like the productivity of the food, is the is birth, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the birth midwifery movement, I think there's so many lessons in there for us in the in the death midwifery movement. But um, one of them, I think, is that it's the reclaiming happens in the stories, and I I think that birth stories have actually have actually been reclaimed to a certain extent in our in our society and um, I think people sort of realize the relevance and the value of a birth story and it's a thing right you can ask someone you can ask your mom or your like birth stories get passed down they get talked about now men talk about them too which is fantastic I think Um, I have some male friends who I was closer with them than their wife, and I remember calling them um, shortly after they'd had a baby. It's like, oh, can you tell me the birth story? And it was just lovely to get that from them and their excitement to tell it, because, of course, their wife usually got to be the one telling the birth story, which is as it should be, but um, but this is cool. But I think that when we talk about um, earlier, you were mentioning, you know, death being sort of a taboo subject, or how are we talking about it? And I think it's messed up a lot of the ways that it's getting talked about this, these days days. Um, But one of the positive things I think that's coming out of it is to make room for what you just said. Um, That your mom has a death story and that you know it and that you told it and that you tell it. And that I have it now too. It's a a thing. Um, I think that's so valuable. I, I actually think that's very much what what this whole reclaiming that's at the heart of it is is reclaiming these death stories that that they're a real fabric in our culture again because the part of the story that's missing for you is that feeling that you said earlier that you came out of the hospital and you realized oh well that's it what now like that's where the story became truncated and that's the alienation and and the pain that you're feeling there is that that part of the story is missing and so um by contrasting in your family's case the story that's there before the time that she died and during the time that she died as opposed to the story that's missing after she died i think that actually is a great example (laughs) Don't you think? I do. I really do. And I'm really appreciative that you asked me about it. Because I, even though I have a podcast about my mom dying, I don't think I've told that story really because I'm afraid it's going to make people sad. And like, I know it, like, I know it could trigger somebody, but like, it doesn't make me sad. I think it was beautiful. I got to hold her hand as she took her last breath. I think that's all you can ask for. Yeah. And we told stories. And I think she felt like the room was at peace, you know, like, yeah. And I think that I think that she felt that, and I think that that's how she knew that it was okay to go. And and I never get to tell that story, so thank you for letting me do that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love hearing it. I love that it's recorded. Yeah, love that it's. I love that it's recorded. Um, and I think that death is not always so beautiful and comforting. I think a lot of deaths are scary and bloody and violent, mm-hmm. um, and that those stories are just every bit as valuable. They don't, they're not just valuable because they're beautiful. They're valuable because they are. They're the truth of, they're the narratives of our lives. Um, And we've become alienated from them. You know, I worked for um, 
Dalhousie Family Medicine for a couple of years, they were doing a bereavement follow-back study and they needed people to conduct uh, uh, quite an in-depth interview of what bereaved people's, what their experience was with the healthcare system, the care that their loved one received at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was calling, you know, two or three people a day and speaking with them for about an hour on the phone in order to conduct this interview over a couple of year period. So I talked to more than 700 families um, during that period. And it, it's surprising how like, almost everyone cried. Now, this wasn't a conversation. I was just administering a survey, but I was still collecting the stories um, in my mind and hearing uh, what people had to say. And, and most people cried, almost everyone. But what they said about their loved one's end of life even when they were so angry and so um, they felt so let down by the care, they felt so robbed of their loved one's life, they felt like it was unfair, even with all of that, which we can all relate to, um, the stories were positive. <laughs> they were overwhelmingly positive. They were about how um, in their loved one's most lousy, horrible, terminal condition, the relationship somehow in that time was really good, <laughs> really good. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a precious thing. It's a, it's a special time. Um, yeah. I think that telling these stories kind of reminds us of that. Oh, for sure. For sure. Now I want to be super respectful of your time because I know you've got, you know, little ones and a, and a house full of things, but I'm, I'm, I just have a couple more questions for you if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm super enjoying this, by the way. I feel like I could talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this question that I have is kind of self-serving because um, I got, I did get really interested in death after my mom passing away. And I, you know, like I said, I wanted to look into the study of death and dying. Um, I had found your program and I was like ready to dive in. I actually sent you an email and I, you sent me all the information and it was like two, I don't know. I think it was like two Septembers ago. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was seeing a psychologist at the time. And, you know, I was talking to her about it and she was like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. And I was like, I was like, why? I would love to support people. And I, you know, like I, I would love to try to help people, you know, like give back and like help people get through the process. And she was like, oh, I just, you know, I'm such an empath. Yes. She didn't think it would be a good idea for me. My husband also didn't think it was a very good idea either. Um, yes. And so I didn't, I didn't look into it any further, but it's still always been in the back of my mind. So have you ever met a person who you didn't think would be a good fit, you know, in your program or, or for this line of work? Yes. And I think I'm, I think I actually can relate to what your um, psychologist and your husband, the, the advice that they were giving you there. I think that they're, they're actually onto something. And so what I would describe is that, um, when we serve others, we really need to be self-aware and we need to be able to be in a spot to put our own stuff aside in order to be fully present to someone else. That's the fundamental skill of all of this. And we do it for each other in messy, imperfect ways in our own families. And that's okay. I mean, that, that's all, that's the natural relationships that exist in the constellation around the person who's dying. And, you know, support will be received helpfully or not helpfully in all kinds of chaotic ways that, that just is. But when we're thinking about actually intentionally serving others, um, then situations like you've described when you're when you're 
too heavy into your own process, then everyone else that you encounter is just going to be an example of of yourself, of what of your own stuff getting worked out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that the fundamental um, element of being able to be in service of others is to be able to be present. And one of the things it takes to be fully present is, um, yeah, is to just, is to know your own stuff, is to have done your own work and to be aware where your work's not done because, you know, it's never done. Um, But to be in the place to be able to put it aside, not totally aside, because I mean, we need to show up um, leading with our vulnerabilities as my teacher in the school, um, Roy Ellis teaches the module, uh, of grief and in describing how to support grieving people, he says that we, we lead with all vulnerabilities and we're genuine. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean bringing your whole self and your whole, whole story and your own narrative narrative. If your own narrative is just so at the forefront for you, it's going to be pretty difficult not to be drawing everybody into your narrative. Mm. Um, so I think that there's all kinds of ways that that we deny death and one of them is in this act of compulsive caregiving and I think you're kind of getting at it right now is um, there's a difference between caring and compulsive caregiving there's a desire to help or fix or be assistance to others in ways that really we just need that helping and fixing for ourselves and that's the way we're sort of um, getting off on it we can we can be too much of that for other people um, I attended a, a weekend retreat with Stephen Jenkinson and he said he was talking about death denial and everybody who was there at this retreat, well, I don't know, I'll just speak for myself, was feeling very, I was feeling very self-congratulatory because I'm, you know, oh, I was thinking of myself as a death midwife at the time. I'm a death midwife. I mean, this is so cool. And um, like I just helped with my friend Jeremy's home burial and I, it was so great. I want everybody to be able to have that great experience that we had. And um, he said, if you don't realize you're here because of your own death denial, then you're so much more death denying than all those people you think you're going to help and fix. (laughs) (laughs) And that really just stopped. That really took the wind out of my sails. And I thought, Oh wow. Like, I guess he just got me because, because of the way that feels, I I think he just got me on that one. Um, But now I see that so true, so true. And so obvious. I think sometimes in this movement, um, there's kind of, and, and sometimes it's called the death positivity movement, which, um, which I get, I, and I, I mean that's 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 cool. I'm 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 okay with death positivity, but but sometimes I think it gives, it can go a little bit too far in this direction where it gives the impression to people that aren't familiar with the movement. It gives the impression that, um, oh, like we're so cool with death and we're so so awesomely accepting of death that we just want everybody else to, to be able to be like us, and so we're almost like peddling death acceptance. We're, we're almost like putting ourselves out there. Well, I want to serve death because, um, yeah, because I want to, I want to basically sell my, my version of death acceptance to other people. And I don't think that we can ever really do that. I think that actually showing up for other people means that they're in their own story mm-hmm. of where they are with death denial or death acceptance. And that's, that's really none of our business. All we can do is show up and, and be attentive and witness their process and their journey. Mm-hmm. It's not about teaching them or fixing them in any way. So, so that's what I would say about, about people that are, that are not suited to this work is just um, people that sort of think they've got death acceptance in the bag. 
<laughs> um, I think we really just need to be like, you know, um, a lot more genuine. Um, I'll, I'll think back again to this great um, lesson that Roy Ellis teaches in the school um, in our death. He, he offers a, a litmus test for, for helping professionals. And he said, if you're, and this has affected me, honestly, I like, I feel like this is actually a litmus test, like a physical thing that I keep in the back pocket of my pants because I refer to it all the time, like sometimes several times a day in like little and big ways. And it's, I just think this is, this is really brilliant. But he says, if you're thinking of helping someone, imagine what your felt response is when you picture them rejecting your help. Hmm. And just check in with yourself about what that feels like. And if you imagine I'm going to help this person to do this and their reaction is, no, thank you. I've got it covered. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, they're so stupid. Like they're going to now, they're going to go down this completely wrong path. Don't they know that if they had just got me on board, that everything would be fine. Um, or if you're just feeling hurt, like, oh, I really wanted to help them. And now what am I going to do now? I have this like poor me kind of left out feeling. If any of that stuff's coming up, the, he said, this litmus test will tell you that you really didn't have any help to offer them in the first place. What you were prepared to offer actually wouldn't, couldn't have been helpful to them. And they knew that and that's why they rejected it. And honestly, I think I, I use that so many times a day. And I think that that's really kind of at the bottom of, of what I'm saying is that we need to like, and that's, I think, the difference between compulsive caregiving and caring. Um, we can care genuinely and authentically and we have to and we must if we're to show up for other people. We must care. If we don't, then, you know, don't bother showing up. But we also aren't there to be attached to our own outcome. Um, when we're there genuinely to, to show up for someone else, then, um, then we actually can be, you know, a real resource for them and they'll, they'll use that as they need to along their path. Um, so Jesse, this, none of this is to say, I think you're a lost cause. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that you will join us in the school. I, I genuinely hope that you will. And I'm glad that you're supported by people that could see, you know, look, Jesse, at this point in your life, like let's, let's, let's make room for you to grieve for your mom. Like, let's do that. Let's, let's help you with that. I mean, these are um, people I think that were caring for you, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, but now, you know, you've got some space, you've got some perspective, you're putting yourself out there in the world and um, learning so much. And uh, yeah, you'll have to, I, I think that you could decide for yourself at this point if, um, you know, if this is a, a skill that, that you can bring into the world and uh, capacity to to accompany other people on their journey to make room and to record their stories, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this is really, yeah, that's really, those are some wise, wise words from you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I appreciate that. Not mine. I hope I've referenced all the great thoughts and ideas from all the people that have taught and inspired me. I think it's so important to pass that along. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so lovely to speak with you. Yeah, you too. I, like I said, I could, I could do this all day, but I'll certainly, uh, you know, let you off the hook on this one. Um, first, last thing I guess would be if somebody was interested in contacting you, I'll put all of your links to your website and everything like that uh, in the show notes. But um, is there any, you know, last little bit that you want to tell them about how they can reach out to you? Yeah, for sure. Well, lots of your listeners might be interested to um, join that Facebook group I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And so if you search on Facebook with for the word death caring, mm -hmm. 
I list all the different words that people are using these days. So it's like death caring, death doula, death midwifery, it kind of lists. But if you just search death caring, um, you'll find us. So that's a good, and you can offer a link there too on your um, on your site. But that's something you could join. And um, to reach me, you can do that through the virtual school. So that's called the Beyond Yonder Virtual School for Community Death Caring in Canada. And um, much more simply, it's www.deathcaring.ca. So if you if you type in death caring, you're you're sure to find me somewhere. And I'm I'm I'd be happy to uh, reach out or to be connected with with anybody through your program. I think um, this piece is is so important, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I love the name of your show, and I love that I got to hear about your mom, and especially about the time that she died. Oh, thank you, Cassandra. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate having you on. And I hope that everybody does, you know, look you up, join the Facebook group. We have, there's some awesome things that go on in there. So definitely, definitely appreciate you coming on. Right on. Thank you so much. It's funny. I've wanted to approach Cassandra about coming on the show for a long time, but I never had the courage. I don't know what I thought would happen, but you know, your brain gets in your own head and After recording last week's episode, I decided I wouldn't allow my self-limiting beliefs to take over, and I messaged her. I'm glad I took my own advice, for once. I loved talking with Cassandra. Her knowledge and her compassion really shine through, and I think that's what makes her so great at teaching others. There were so many questions I had I didn't get to ask, so perhaps we'll have to follow up in a later show. I'm grateful for her wise words and for her asking about my mom's story. Let me know what you think about the show via social media. I've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all pearls from my mom. Or you can email me at pearlsfrommymom at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening and want to interact with us, join the Facebook group. You can find all of the information at pearlsfrommymom.com. And as always, keep sharing to keep the legacy alive.